Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's extremely important to be well diversified because if you bought a portfolio of 20 bonds, it, it, unforeseen things happen, and, and absolutely over a five or seven year investment horizon, any one of those companies could, could default, as we've seen in March and April of this year. People are, you know, wake up to the fact that these companies can default. Um, and if one of those uh, defaults, you've lost 5% uh, of your capital and what's supposed to be, for most people, kind of the defensive part of their portfolio. So, our view is that it's extremely important to be well diversified when you're investing in bonds. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. With interest rates at historic lows, where can investors put their cash? Older investors need steady income and younger investors may be saving money for a home, education or family. Either way, this portion of your capital needs to be deployed in a way that's not subject to stock market ups and downs. So I've invited Mark Mitchell. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Phil. Morning. How are you? Mark Mitchell's a director of Daintree Capital, a boutique investment management company specialising in building fixed income credit portfolios. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to this point in your life. Uh, well, I'm a Texas boy, actually. So yeah, I grew up in Dallas and went to university at University of Texas in Austin and then uh, spent some time in, um, in Chicago, uh, went to DePaul there and I uh, just always had a, had a passion for financial markets um, to just enjoy um, trying to understand what drives financial assets and understanding economies and the behavior of people and psychology and that sort of stuff. So I just always had a passion for it and um, fell into doing, you know, sort of credit research, looking at companies that issue debt and, and the risk profiles of them and eventually got into sort of managing portfolios and then, you know, down the track, launched, launched my own business. So yeah, I really enjoy it. It's, um, it's, it's quite fun for me. It's, um, every day is different. You know, you're always learning something. I'll always trying to sort of understand, um, how the pieces fit together a little bit, a little bit better and solve, solve the puzzle if you like. So you were attracted to credit markets from an, most people go straight into stocks, really. Yeah, yeah, it's but, a good question. Look, I mean, I, I do like stocks, and, um, and a lot of people go into the stock side of things because the returns are a bit, bit bigger. There's a lot of stock stories. You know, people love to talk about the stock that they own and how that stock has gone from $5 to $20 and how smart they are. So I sort of ended up in credit just because uh, I started sort of doing research in sort of the high-yield uh, credit markets, which is, you know, sort of the riskier Issuers, and it just sort of stayed on that path. I mean, I don't really have a problem per se with the stocks. I mean, yeah, certainly that's fine. But uh, I mean, I still sort of look at stocks and have interest in stocks. But as far as a career, I just sort of found this little niche for myself. Mm. But you're looking at very similar sorts of things, you know, and understanding risks and how business operate and those types of things. So it's a similar skill set, similar things that you look at, but sort of fell into the, the credit side of things. To drill down, people that are studying stocks, they're um, looking at the, the fundamentals of a stock and the fundamentals of a company and how it's operating. Yeah. But what you're looking at is the money that these companies seek to fund their growth. Is that how it works? Is that what cre- a credit market is? Yeah, yeah. So, so credit- if, we just, if we could just go right yeah, into the sh- basics of this. Yeah, sure. Just to sort of understanding at, at a grassroots level. So generally, you know, there's in, in a university, you would study something called Porter's uh, analysis, which is like the five forces that affect a business. 
So whether you're a credit investor or a debt investor or an equity investor, you'd probably look at both of those things. But the outcome is a little bit different. So if you're an equity investor, you want to know if the overall value of the business is going to grow. And in theory, over time, that should lead to a higher price for the stock. Whereas a debt investor, what you're really concerned about is that, you know, I've lent them money. I want them to pay me my interest regularly. And then at the end of that term, I want them to give me my money back. So it's a little bit different approach and that you're much so in a sense, the equity investor probably looks at a broader range of things because they're worried not only about paying back the debt, but also the growth. Whereas the debt investor, they don't get paid for that upside investing. So it's much more about uh, I want these guys to stay in business. I don't want them to go out of business and I want to get my money back from them. So you're looking at very similar sorts of things, but the objectives and outcomes are a little bit different. Let's turn to interest rates. They seem very low at the moment. Do you have any kind of long-term view about interest rates and where they're heading? Yeah, sure. Interest rates are low. And uh, unfortunately for, for listeners and for investors, I mean, uh, you probably would have heard this already, but uh, they're going to stay low for, for a long time is, is our view. Um, so there are lots of reasons um, for that without being too technical in, in this type of medium. But yeah, but interest rates are, are a function of the demand for money, you know, how much people actually need to borrow, a function of cash rates that are set by central banks. And central banks, particularly in the U.S., uh, you know, they're trying to balance the idea of having uh, full employment, but also they don't want inflation. So if you're a central banker, inflation is an anathema to you. <laughs> you want a small amount of inflation, but in a very controlled way. Um, so they're very aggressive about trying to control inflation, but also trying to balance balance employment. So we're in an environment where there's very little inflation, and, and there are a number of drivers of that. Uh, lots of academics spend a lot of time looking at these things, but some of the more obvious things, you know, are that there is a bit of a surplus of capital that's available that, that can be lent out. Things like demographic factors play a role in inflation. So generally speaking, you know, the older people get, the older an economy is, the less demand there is for money, less people are spending. They've already sort of accumulated wealth. Those things, those things definitely, definitely play a factor. So, and then one of the other ones that gets talked about quite a bit is technology. You know, the influence of technology and the ability to, you know, you're sitting in Arizona and you need a project done, you can get someone in India. Uh, online to do that project for you. And so the mobility of labor and those types of things that really all those help keep sort of wage costs under control. And that sort of leads on to inflation. So a sort of a long winded way of saying, you know, inflation is relatively low, there's an excess amount of savings. So those things would likely point to to interest rates staying low for for a long period of time. Okay, well, let's then move on to bonds, because credit markets, we're actually talking about bonds here. And there's different kinds of bonds, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. There's a big, big range of bonds. Um, it's a little bit different than stocks. You know, if you go to buy a, a stock of, of Microsoft, you own the same stock as your neighbor owns and your uncle and your cousin. It's all the same stuff for the most part. Uh, it's just they're, they're, they're very homogenous. Bonds are, are, are very specific instruments um, that are negotiated under specific terms at a point in time with certain conditions. So they're very, very different. So when you go to buy a bond, you have to understand the structural features of that particular bond. And so uh, a large bank, for example, like a JP Morgan, they, they will have thou- literally thousands of bonds on offer. They, they, um, they issue them. They issue the bonds. The, the bonds themselves. That's right. They, that's right. So um, they need money to fund their operations. They don't want to fund it all with equity because the more equity they sell, that reduces the return for the equity holders. So they don't want to be 100% equity funded. So they need debt to help fund their operations. So if you're a bank, you get that money generally from three different sources. You get it from from the equity investors, but you also get it from people who give you a term deposit. So a term, from a bank's perspective, a term deposit is a short-term loan. 
And so from our perspective, you know, we put the money in the bank and we get a return. But from their perspective, it's it's a loan that eventually has to be paid back. And the other way they generally get their funding is through selling a bond offering to uh, to investors like like ourselves. And so our job is to look at the range of companies that, that are out there. Um, and all the different types of structural features and what, what sort of return we get for those bonds. Um, and then we construct a portfolio of them. So it's a diversified portfolio of bonds. So look, look it's hard for the average individual, to be honest, just to uh, sort of buy a bond off the shelf, if, if you like, because they are so different. So uh, if you are, as an individual, going to invest in bonds, you know, you definitely need to, to devote some time to understanding all the structures. And there's um, and government bonds as well. Yeah, exactly right. So even within the bond space, um, there's, uh, there's safer assets, there are riskier assets, and then there are quite risky assets. So the safest, generally speaking, is government bonds, so issued by the U.S. government or the Canadian government or, or whoever it is. Um, those tend to be the safest bonds. And so when you think about investing in a bond, there are a number of risk factors that you look at, but the one most people focus most heavily on, you know, is the the default risk, you know, the risk that you're not going to get your money back. So we would have seen, you know, very recently, you know, your listeners would have seen some pretty high profile defaults, you know, Hertz, for example, you know, these some of these car companies that really got into trouble. Oh, and in, um, in terms of governments, Argentina. In Argentina, well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in, within, within the government space, there's sort of uh, high quality borrowers, the people who have a good chance you're going to get your money back, and then those that are quite risky. So, so Argentina, it's the same for governments and for companies. Some exactly have better right. credit risks than, than others. Exactly right. Yeah. So there's a spectrum yeah. of credit risk. There are people who are much uh, more worthy borrowers, and there are guys that, you know, that are a little bit more suspect. And so those people obviously have to pay a lot more to borrow money from people because there's more risk, they won't get it back. So absolutely. So there's a similar, you know, in, in the stock world, you know, there's companies that um, uh, if you imagine a company that's really profitable, uh, generating a lot of returns, it's growing uh, an Amazon, for example, um, that's a pretty low risk company to lend to. Or if you imagine, you know, at the moment, an airline, you know, where traffic <laughs> yeah. is way down, um, they might be fine, but if I'm going to lend you money, it's a very risky time. So uh, just a spectrum of uh, different types of borrowers, absolutely. And to provide some perspective, the bond market is way bigger than the any equity market. Is that the case? It is. It is. It is much bigger, but it's not as sexy. You know, that, that's the thing. <laughs> and and, and uh, people don't like to talk about, you know, because as a bond investor, you know, you might buy a bond at $100, let's say, for example, um, you might get $3 a year in coupon. And at the end of five years, you get $100 back. You know, that's not sexy for the financial media <laughs> to talk about. Uh, you can talk <laughs> it's about a very how. simple transaction. It's a very simple it? transaction. You're lending um, money. And then yeah, yeah. You get and, it back. And, 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 you know, but if you're, uh, you know, it's very exciting to talk about the fact you owned Amazon and, and what's happened with, you know, that sort of stuff. So certainly doesn't get as much attention, you know, in financial media. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
ShareSight is an online portfolio tracking tool that automatically records trades, dividends, ETF distributions, and gives you the reporting tools you need to help you manage your portfolio. ShareSight is pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Four months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSight.com slash Stocks for Beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. It'll help you save money at tax time and improve your investing decisions. That's ShareSight.com slash Stocks for Beginners. Let's drill down a little bit further towards people's individual portfolios. One of the traditional ideas of investing is the 60-40 portfolio. What is the 60-40 portfolio? Yeah, so 60-40 portfolio, uh, so if you studied finance in university, you know, you talked about this idea of looking at the the risk of a port of an overall portfolio versus the expected return. And so the idea is that you want to try to they have this idea of an efficient frontier of, you know, what, what's the best combination of assets that gives you um, the maximum return with the minimum amount of risk. And so you, if you can't do it for your listeners, but just imagine a little, um, you know, sort of almost a lot of Nike shape type sort of um, uh, graph. And depending on what your risk profile is, that's kind of the, the portfolio that you come up with. And traditionally, probably for the past 30 to 40 years, uh, one of the mainstays of that approach has been this idea of a 60-40 portfolio. And the idea is that r- very roughly, you own 60% of your portfolio um, in stocks and you own 40% in bonds. And the reason why you, you had that approach is because uh, in most cases up until recently, uh, you'd have what you call a negative correlation between those two. So what does that mean? So generally speaking, if you own a, an equity, or a portfolio of equities, or say the S&P 500 index, uh, and that sells off, moves lower in price, generally speaking, the more defensive assets, like you mentioned before, like government bonds, those will tend to rally in price. So there's an offsetting effect there. And so it makes sense for you to diversify your overall portfolio risk if you have equities than to have bonds. And so 60-40 has been sort of a traditional type of asset allocation. Now, of course, that's very generic. And it all is always varied based on, you know, where you are in your life and, you know, what your risk profile is. Generally speaking, you know, if you're 80 years old, it doesn't make a lot of sense to own 80 percent uh, of your portfolio in equities because you need income certainty and capital stability. And if you're, and if you're 20 years old, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to own a heck of a lot of bonds because you have a very long time until you retire. And so you want that the ability for that capital to grow and compound. And so equities will tend to provide a higher return over time. So. Yeah, so that has been the traditional uh, approach, but I mean, our, our view, and I think what's becoming probably more of a mainstream view, is, is that that approach may not work in an environment where, as you mentioned before, Phil, interest rates are very low, and, and so eventually rates will get to a level where they can't go much lower, and so the idea of you know when the equities sell off that your bonds are going to go up, that's nowhere near as effective because you're sort of approaching a level where rates uh, can't move much lower and the prices can't go to too much higher. And so that's a real challenge for a lot of people because for the past 20, 30, 40 years, Mm. uh, people have really kind of leaned on government bonds and those sort of defensive assets to protect their equities. Um, That'll be a struggle, I think, in in the next sort of decade or two or longer. That's one of the confusing things a lot of people find about bonds, that there's a correlation between interest rates and the value of a bond. Yeah, can you just explain this? Yeah, sure. Really simple terms. Yeah, now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, if, if you imagine, uh, uh, let's let's just imagine today, a company issues a bond, and it, it pays you a coupon of five percent. You agree the terms. You say, well, based on who you are and how risky you are and the general level of interest rates, I expect a five percent uh, return on this bond. 
and that's fine. And the bond is probably set up at a hundred dollars. Uh, but then if you imagine, uh, let's fast forward a year from now and the general level of interest rates has moved lower. So now if you were striking that deal for the exact same company, um, you'd only expect a 4% coupon that the general level of rates has gone down. So that bond, which has now been outstanding for a year, has a coupon of 5%. And the new bond that would be outstanding for that same risk has a coupon of 4%. So on a relative basis, that old bond has actually become more valuable and so, what? So the price of the bond trades to, to actually equalize the value of that bond for the new bonds would be outstanding. So the price has to go up. Mm. So because bonds will tend to mature at a certain price. So if you're, you know, if if I lend you money uh, and we agree a price of a hundred dollars, uh, five years from now, uh, I need you to give me that hundred dollars back, and that hundred dollars doesn't really change. But because of this idea of the interest rates, the price might go up to say one hundred three. But whenever the bond actually matures, it's going eventually it's going to what they say pull to par, which means it's going to go from 103. It's going to move back down in price until it gets to 100. So that's sort of the mark-to-market volatility around bonds. But as we talked about before, it's not like an equity portfolio. So it, it, in many ways, uh, what goes up must come down. So it goes up to 103. It eventually is going to go back down to 100 because you've only agreed. To, we've agreed $100 at the That's end of that That's all it's ever going to be. That's all it's ever going to get. Yeah. yeah. So, so what happens when there's an interest rate differential is that price will go up to 103 to make the value. Because the, the bond is going to go from 103 to 100 the expected forward return will be lower, right? Because uh, I'm, I'm paying $103 for it, but in four years' time, I'm only going to get $100 for it. So now the expected return of that bond is now 4%, which equates to what the new market clearing level is for that type of risk. And I don't, was that straightforward enough? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always very <laughs> it's very difficult thing yeah, to explain, yeah. I know, but really what it simply means is, is that when general interest rates go down, yep. the, the value of bonds go up. Exactly right. That's just really That's simply just very simple terms. Exactly right. And the converse is true. And so rates go up, those prices t- tend to go down. And so to your question earlier about the 60-40 portfolio, so that's why it generally has, has been valuable. Um, because in an environment where uh, economies are t- tend not to do very well, um, there's not as much demand for money. And typically what you'd see is central banks sort of, uh, you know, like the US Federal Reserve, lowering those cash rates. Um, interest rates are going down in that environment, and therefore the price of the bonds that you have, particularly the government bonds, they'll tend to be going up, and that's kind of how you get the offsetting effect of that 60-40 portfolio. And because interest rates are so low now, there's no perspective. They can't um, go too movement. much low. They, can, they can't go too much lower. I mean, there are certainly economies around the world. Europe, obviously, everyone is aware of. You know, those those rates are negative, but they're not materially negative. You know, so you're not talking. It can't go another two or three or four percent. Maybe it can go another one, one and a half percent, if if that. But there's no real appetite in the U.S. and the Federal Reserve to to take interest rates negative and people and economies where it has been done. For the most part, you know, jury's sort of still out as to whether or not it was actually a good decision. Generally, the mainstream thought is that it probably wasn't a great decision, and probably in retrospect they they shouldn't have done that. But the general view is that you you know you're not going to take rates from you know plus 1% down to minus 5 or 10%, it's just not going to happen. And so in that environment, you're approaching a floor of how low they can go, and, and therefore it's harder and harder to expect your, your bonds to rally on the back of lower interest rates. So as with stocks, it's important to get um, diversity in the bonds that you buy. Yeah. And it's very difficult for an individual investor with a small amount to 
uh, to invest in the market, in, in this particular kind of market. It's very difficult for them to get that kind of diversity. Can you tell us about this particular Yeah, point? no, look, I'm gr- glad you brought that up. It, it's something that we have quite a strong view um, on an organization. So, um, you know, people who, who want to do investing and they go out and bu- uh, build their own stock portfolio, there's been a lot of academic research that, you know, you can get a reasonable level of diversification, probably with 20 to 25 stocks, depending on what you read. Um, but, but by the time you have 20 to 25 stocks, you, you diversified what they refer to as idiosyncratic risk, which is the the risk of an individual name. You have sort of have and the impact on the portfolio is relatively small. But what's unique about stocks is that, you know, with Amazon or Microsoft example, you can buy a stock at $10. It can go to 50, it can go to 100, it can go to 200. So there's really no limit in terms of where it can go. You can have a portfolio of, say, 25 stocks. Uh, 20 of them can all lose money, and five of them can do so well that they pay for the other 20 and then then some and still give you a very nice return. If you contrast that with a bond world, that's not the case. Kind of as we talked about before, you know, a bond is a loan. Loan $100 for five years, and five years you get $100 back. The bond is never going to go from 100 to 200 to 300 to 400. So, so in the bond world, we refer to that as, as asymmetrical risk, which is the idea that one-sided um, one risk. Yeah. One-sided risk, exactly right. Yeah. So there's very little upside, and it's all downside. So in that type of profile, it's extremely important to be well-diversified because if you bought a portfolio of 20 bonds, it, it, unforeseen things happen, and, and absolutely over a five- or seven-year investment horizon, any one of those companies could, could default, as we've seen in March and April of this year. People uh, you know, wake up to the fact that these companies can default, and if one of those uh, defaults, you've lost 5% uh, of your capital and what's supposed to be, for most people, kind of the defensive part of their portfolio. So our view is that it's extremely important to be well-diversified. When you're investing in bonds now, as an individual, you in theory you could do that, but you do have to have a fair bit of money because, uh, in our in our view, depending on what how uh, how much risk you're taking in the portfolio, but at a minimum you probably want to have at least 50 different companies, and that's for a very high quality portfolio. And if you start going into sort of high yield and low the lower parts of it, you probably want two, three, four, five times that number. It needs to be extremely well diversified because those companies are going to default. Uh, and so when they do default, you don't want it to have too too material of an impact on your portfolio. So, but looking at a high quality portfolio of fifty companies, you know, the, 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 it's generally hard to do that as an individual because there are minimum trade sizes associated with that. There's brokerage costs, all those sorts of things, um, and, and just then, the sheer amount of uh, research. And the too. sheer exactly right, the sheer amount of research you would have to do to even have a modestly well informed view. Uh, on those companies and, and the bonds, as we talked about before, they are quite different. And so, and then there's structural features of those bonds that you know, if you haven't been working in the industry or don't have a law degree, you know, it uh, <laughs> it can be really difficult to understand, um, you know, what those features are and what they what they mean and how you should price them. So, you know, it takes fixed income teams many many years and very some very experienced people to to look at these structural features and understand how significant they are or not. So kind of a long-winded way of just saying absolutely as an individual you can construct your own bond portfolio but you know you need to have a lot of capital to have it properly diversified and you really need to devote a lot of time to make sure you understand what those risks are and for a lot of people you know they might view it as, as more work than than it's worth you know because you might end up having a bond portfolio and because interest rates are quite low in this day and age you might be doing well to get a bond portfolio that yields one one and a half percent Whereas if you you know luck out on picking Amazon or, or Microsoft you know and that, that that can be a massive home run for you so it becomes even harder in this environment probably to justify spending that that sort of time and, and presumably you'd have to be continually 
researching because they're going to expire. Exactly well, right. And you'd have to keep on replenishing yeah. that part of the portfolio. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's on- ongoing work and then monitoring the profile of those companies. And then um, actually, if you actually want to sell, the bond market is, is a little more liquid than the equity market. So the transactions costs associated with moving in and out of uh, $10,000 worth of bonds is much higher than the transactions cost moving out of $10,000 worth of stock. I mean, as you know, some, some places actually offer, you know, uh, brokerage-free trading now. So that's another, that's another big factor to consider. So speaking of diversification, most people think that by having a, you know, a certain number of stocks, that 25, that that equals diversification. But people don't realize that asset allocation is an important part of a diversified portfolio. Like we were saying before about um, the 60-40 portfolio. So bonds can provide another dimension to your diversification. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So look, uh, I think most academic research would support the idea. And if you go to a financial advisor, they'll probably tell you that what's critically important is your asset allocation decision. It's not that you necessarily choose stock A over stock B, or even that you you know, choose the fund manager A over fund manager B, those things do matter. But what really matters is, you know, how much do you have in stocks at this point in the cycle? Or how much do you have in certain types of interest rate products or property or gold? That's that's where the vast majority of the returns come from. So uh, it's extremely important. At the same time, it is very difficult <laughs> to get right. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very experienced, smart people who spend a lot of time trying to forecast how this particular asset class is going to, to return. And they, they get it wrong regularly. So it is very difficult. So as an individual, it can be quite challenging to, to forecast, you know, well, the optimal asset allocation for me over the next 18 months is X. So, so I think uh, people that I've listened to, I'm not a financial advisor, obviously, um, but people that I've listened to and, and heard talk about it, you know, that they, what seems to make the most sense to me is, you know, you sort of work under the assumption that there's going to be volatility. You can't really forecast what these things are going to, to do, but you have, uh, it's understanding more what your risk tolerance is and how much risk you want to take. And so managing it more from a risk perspective as opposed to an expected return perspective, because you don't really know what the returns are going to be. But you do know you as an individual, what your risk tolerances are, you know, you have, uh, I'm buying a house in the next 12 months. Um, I don't need to have probably shouldn't have 80% of that money sitting in the stock market. Yeah. Um, I'm 20 years old, and and I don't I'm putting money away that I'm not going to touch for 40 years, I probably don't need any of it sitting in bonds, because I'm not worried about the, the, the drawdowns that the stock market are going to give me. Um, you know, most over most most ten year horizons, you know, stocks are, are positive. I think all ten year horizons, I believe. So, so if you have a long term investment horizon, that makes sense. So, it's about marrying up what your risk tolerance is, is as well as your and, investment horizon and what you might be using, what, you, what, what how you want to deploy the cash that you're Absolutely. investing at the moment. Okay, the twenty year old might say, okay, I'm just going to put this money away and yeah. not touch it for forty years. Absolutely, but, but Absolutely. they might be saving for a home. That's exactly right. So mm. you, maybe you set that portion aside, you put it in something that's much more conservative or defensive. It's a lower expected return, but you have a high level of confidence that that capital will be there. Be there and it's going to be it. earning just a little bit more interest than you're going to be getting in um Yeah, that's exactly the right. Bank. Then you get in the yeah. bank. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So it's just balancing all those things. I mean, one of the things I, I uh, one of my bugbears about people who do investing is that they often associate the, the best investment allocation is the one with the highest return. And, and, and I have a strong view that that's not the case. You know, it's... Um, what is the right portfolio for me and my lifestyle and where I'm at in my life and my priorities is going to be different than you or, or anyone else. 
So it's about what's the right portfolio for you. And in many cases, that's a lower expected return portfolio because it makes the most sense for you. So it's not wrong. <laughs> no. Because of, but, but, but a lot of people do, I, I think. You want to sleep at night as well. Some people well, just really want to uh, sleep at night. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and, some, and some people are very, very secure in their job and their income that comes from that. And so they don't need their investment portfolio to work as hard. Uh, others like to roll the dice, you know, and, and, and uh, if it doesn't work out, they're okay with that. So it, neither of those approaches is wrong. Uh, it, it's what makes the most sense for you. So investors, to get that diversification, can invest in ETFs yeah. to invest in. And this is the kind of products that, you, yeah. that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. So some of these are actively managed and some are passively managed. Is that the case? And what's the difference? Yeah. Um, so there's been an explosion of exchange-traded funds uh, in the U.S. And um, generally speaking, not all, all, all the time, but the, most of that growth has been in what you refer to as passive products. There, there is a growing segment of actively managed exchange-traded funds, but predominantly it's been passively managed. And generally, if you're a Vanguard or a BlackRock or someone like that and, and you're, you, know, you sell these products, that they, they typically mirror some established index or a customized index. So maybe the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 or whatever it is. And what they try to do is they just try to mirror the performance of that index and, and minimize the transactions cost and minimize the fees. So you effectively largely get the return of the market um, with a, with a rel- relatively low low fee. So, and, and there's been lots of research that shows, particularly in sort of the, the large cap, uh, well-established uh, equity uh, equities and equity indices, that, that that can make some sense. It absolutely can make some sense. It is hard in those types of markets for, for active investors to add value because uh, so many people cover them. I mean, I mean everyone in the, in the world has a view on Amazon and Microsoft. Mm. So they're extremely well covered. And so people might refer to that as the more work that's done on a particular company or the stock, the more efficiently it's priced, the more accurately it's priced. That's not always the case, but as a general assumption, but if you compare that, like let's say, to a part of the market, like might refer to as the micro cap or the small cap part of the market, where it's a really small business, only been going for two or three or four years, no one's really covering it because they're not incentivized to cover it because they're not really selling equities. There aren't that many people invested in it. That's when you can find some mispricings. You know, something is trading at five dollars, but if you really understood the value of that business, it should be trading at eight or nine dollars. So if you're able to go and do that sort of work, you can definitely find cheap, cheap assets. And so that type of that's sort of a difference where certain parts of the market, you know, absolutely passive can make a lot of sense in equities. Uh, but in other parts, it probably makes a little, a little less sense because those assets are not very efficiently, efficiently priced. Uh, when it comes to fixed income investing, there has been an explosion of investing in, in um, passively exchange traded products. And, and um, sort of to the point I was making earlier is that I think that's made a lot of sense, you know, for the past 10 or 20 years, because as we talked about, Phil, with rates, as interest rates move lower, the prices of those bonds have tended to move higher. So if you're in a passive product that's invested against those types of indices, and they all tend to be relatively long interest rate exposure, they've been doing pretty well. They've done well, and you've got an exposure to that at a relatively low cost. The, the challenge now becomes as rates are, are low and probably staying relatively low, you, you can't expect those, those funds to perform well because most of the return really has come from rates, rates moving lower. So it, it's challenging. It really is challenging. You know, we talked a little bit before about the challenge with the 60-40 portfolio and that 40% of the portfolio we talked about, that applies to whether it's actively or passively managed. And so I do feel like that's going to be a bit more of a challenge. So my business and, and um, some of the groups that we've partnered with, you know, we're looking at, at uh, running actively exchange-traded 
funds because what we think in this environment where rates are low and staying low, you have to do more than just expect rates to keep moving lower. So uh, there are other ways to add value in these portfolios through actively trading and other types of strategies, uh, investing more in sort of credit type exposures, you know, Bank of America's JP Morgan's rather than investing in the U.S. government debt or Canadian government debt. We think those can make a lot of sense in an environment where rates, rates are low. With your fixed income ETFs, there's a range of risk profiles. Absolutely. So Absolutely. going from absolutely safe, which are only going to give you a, you know, a little bit above the whatever the interest general cash, cash rate, rate is, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. to more riskier but higher rates of return kind yeah. of ETF portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as we talked about before, the, within within fixed income, there's a, a large range of risk profiles. And so it's a matter of what makes the most sense for you. You know, if you are taking more risk, you just need to, to make sure that you have a longer investment horizon because uh, March 2020 was a great example of how just about every financial asset in the world that had any sort of risk to it uh, was was punished quite quite severely, you know. And our our higher risk fund was the same same dynamic. And so, if you're only investing for a three or six month window, and if you're unlucky enough to be in that product during that time, uh, you'd very easily could have a, a bad return and maybe even lost some of your capital. But if you have more of a five year investment horizon, which is what we in our higher risk product, that's what we say. We you know we say please don't give us any money if you can't stay there for five years because we are going to have these bouts of. of a, and so the longer your investment horizon, the longer the likelihood is that you will hit that expected return, even if you have a fair bit of market volatility. I mean, March twenty twenty was your listeners are probably aware, but but it was it was absolutely one of the worst periods we we ever saw both in equity land and in credit land, com- co- compressed into a very short window of a few weeks. We've had big moves before, but never in such a, a short space of time. And so it, it, we don't, hopefully that won't happen again. It might, <laughs> never, never say never, but it was an extraordinary period. But but it's just a reminder of, of what can happen. And, and you know, it's the, the challenge there, you know, there's a lot of psychology and that goes into it, you know, you know, it's, it's often difficult for people to just sort of sit there. And, and if you're looking at your portfolio every day and it's going down day after day after day, and you're like, well, at some stage you just sort of capitulate you and give say, up. Yeah, yeah. I just give up mm-hmm. and which is sensible, which is understandable, but I mean, it could end up, you could end up selling at the bottom. So you have to have that sort of when we, we, we talk about constructing portfolios, it's sort of about managing the downside, you know, and managing what's the worst case scenario. Can I handle that type of volatility? Am I, uh, am I in a situation emotionally uh, in a stage of my life where I can actually handle that? Because everyone can handle the upside. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's easy. That's, easy part, that's yeah. the easy bit. But can, can you handle the downside? And that, that's, that's why it's really important to construct your portfolios and make your selections with that sort of thought process in mind. Yeah. Mark Mitchell, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, lovely. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.